Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have, brought from the, I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilin and Malon. And also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought you to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenimbad, uh, Amenimbad fathered uh, Nashim, Nashim fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Heather, that was a worthy effort. I'm sorry to give you a genealogy. All right. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. If you're in person or on YouTube with us, we're glad that you're joining us in worship. Uh, if you are on YouTube, it's our hope that you can come and join us in person. And um, if you're new virtually, uh, I'd, rec I'd just love to know you're here. We'd love to know you're here. And so if you could just email us at info at northcrosschurch.com or sit at northcrosschurch.com, that'd be great. If you're here in person and you're new, we're really glad you're here. And we hope you feel welcomed. And there's a welcome table out there, and you can sign up to, to get newsletters if you'd like. There's also just a free gift um, that you can take. We'd love 
for you to, to feel welcomed in that way. And then if you just want to get more involved in the community, I'm going to continue to plug this. We have life groups that meet um, either weekly or biweekly, and um, we'd love for you to be a part of that. Um, please try one out. And then also you heard earlier when Damon announced some of the in-between the Saturday to, to Saturday things that uh, we also do at North Cross. I should say Monday to Saturday things. Anyway, uh, I did want to kind of pivot and talk about what we're doing uh, this morning in terms of that passage that we just read. We as a church are, are celebrating the season of Lent. We're continuing to lean into it. And Lent is the season for self-reflection and preparation for our yearly celebration of Easter. And I really appreciate how Sarah Condon put it in an article. She describes the feeling and meaning of Lent this way. Lent is not sad because we can't eat carbs. Lent is sad because we are forced to watch the slow and deliberate movement of our Savior from his ministry to his cross. And it reminds us of our sin and our powerlessness over it. And yet at the same time, I'd also add, we're also reminded of Jesus's grace and power over that sin by his cross. And so we're looking together at the book of Ruth because its demonstrations of love push us into self-examination of our own love, our own abilities and inabilities, the love we can feel welling up within us at opportune moments, and the love that we look inside and see that we lack at the moments when we need it the most. But at the center of our personal stories, these are our personal stories of real historical people like us are Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz in the book of Ruth. And in this book of Ruth, it's not just a bunch of ancient biographies. It's about the love of God in those people's, those real people's lives. The love of God humming along behind the human scenes. He's invisibly at work Holy, stubbornly, uneasily, extravagantly, riskily, and oh, so personally. But before we begin to ask about our love and to talk more about God's love that functions within it and behind it, uh, would you take some moments to pray with us and for our time together in God's word to us this morning? Let's pray. Father, I do just pray that you would be... Um, behind and amidst us. <laughs> As I just confessed earlier, um, maybe some of us are feeling how I feel, like it's just been a weekend already. And I just pray that you would help calm our hearts, um, help us to know your love. Would you spread your wings as our redeemer? And would you comfort us by your love? And some of us um, maybe need to be challenged this morning. Maybe we need to hear your word um, and to see the ways and places where um, we're failing to love. Or maybe we just need to see the places and, and, and times where we fail to see your love at work. And I pray that that would be um, answered in these words, in this time together. Lord Jesus, would you be lifted up? Would you be high and beautiful? Would you be believable even more so to the eyes of our hearts? We ask this because you promised to do that. And we plead your promise back to you. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, Peter Grieve was this, a British citizen who in the 1930s was living abroad and living in India, the subcontinent of India. And he described his life this way in a later memoir. I lived like a nomad, moving from one city to another, 
existing in seedy hotels or in shoddy rooms where I seldom remained for more than a few weeks at time. You see, he was a traveling salesman in the 1930s in India. And in the year 1939, Peter Grieve was diagnosed with a skin disease called leprosy, also called Hansen's disease. And for seven years, he lived in poverty in the slums of Calcutta, India. Until a British charity organization found and brought him back to England and placed him at a home for lepers that was run by a group of devout Anglican women nurses. And after a short period of intense gratitude, Peter Grieve became bitter and despairing of his estate. You see, his leprosy had made him blind, half blind. It had made him partially paralyzed. And so he was unable to work. He was unable to return to society outside of the compound, and despite his desperate attempts to escape. And all this led Peter Grieve to seriously contemplate taking his own life. One morning, perhaps kind of especially feeling the weight of all of these sorrows more than normal, uh, Peter Grieve woke up at an earlier hour than he ever had, and he took a walk around the grounds when he found he couldn't sleep. In the near dawn darkness, he heard a strange buzzing sound off in the distance, and so he followed that noise. And he followed it all the way to the community's chapel, and there inside, a place he had never been, he saw the nurses committed to his physical care, gathered in a circle with their heads bowed and praying aloud a list of names. And when Greaves, his eyes, half-blind eyes adjusted to the light of that chapel, he looked on the walls, and there he saw a list of names, the names that his nurses were praying They were the patients' names, the names of all the lepers in that home. On those chapel walls, Peter Grieve saw his own name. And on the lips of those nurses that he both loved and despised, he heard his own name. In his memoir, The Second Miracle, Grieve wrote that the experience of connection, of linking, changed the very course of his life. He felt wanted. He felt graced. If you take a step back and you look at the book of Ruth, it's this wonderful love story that speaks to what Philip Yancey calls grace, unearned gifts and unexpected pleasures that bring the most joy. So if you've ever fallen in love or you've seen someone single you out for deep and sustained relationship, Have you ever had that experience? It's a dizzying feeling, isn't it? Someone at last feels that I, I am the most desirable, attractive, companionable creature on the planet. Someone lies awake thinking of me. Someone forgives me before I ask, thinks of me when she gets dressed, orders his life around me. Someone loves me just the way I am. But the book of Ruth, love story and all, is also excruciatingly ordinary, almost forgettable, right? Naomi plus family leave Bethlehem. Most of the family dies. Two family members return to Bethlehem. Ruth, a daughter-in-law, gathers barley. A local gentleman farmer by the name of Boaz helps, ex- helps his extended family out, first by grain and then by marriage and a baby carriage, right? That's how it works. And then the climax of the story, chapter 4, Here's how the commentator Dean Ulrich puts it. 
Chapter four begins with a strange sandal removing custom and ends with a list of names. I mean, who ends a love story with a genealogy? A laundry list of 10 names that most of us don't even know who they are. But what if God was doing what those nurses and Peter Greaves' leprosy home were doing? And even more so. What if Boaz was pulling aside a nearer relative and a quorum of 10 witnesses, exchanging sandals and marrying Ruth to lovingly name Naomi and Ruth? Remembering Naomi, her family, and her grief-filled suffering. Honoring the painstaking labor of Ruth and her daily love for Naomi. What if God, through the narrator of the book of Ruth, was telling Naomi and telling Ruth, She has a name. You have a name. What if he was saying the same thing to Boaz? You, he has a name. And you are my can't sleep at night desire. What if the genealogy at the end of chapter four was God's attempt to post notice, to make mention of all the serious and important lives that came before and came after Boaz? from the ordinary Perez to the extraordinary King David. You see, Boaz's ordinary actions, and I'm putting, think about extraordinary and ordinary in air quotes, okay? The ordinary actions and the overlooked list of ancestors, these actions and these names tell us something really important, that our actions and our names are important to God. That God takes our lives so seriously that we can have something to do with what God is up to in this world. Healing harms like leprosy, righting wrongs with unmerited kindness for the overlooked. So in a sentence, chapter four of Ruth tells us that God personally cares about who we are. He cares about our names. And God also personally honors what we do. He honors our decisions and he honors our actions by working through them and for them. So to place and kind of prove this truth about God in chapter four of Ruth, I wanted to outline uh, the story here. We're gonna look at some ways in which God is intentionally personal and kind of two big chunks of this chapter. So first in verses one through 12, we get to see how God meticulously works in overlooked details. And then second, in verses 12 through the end of the passage, or verse 13 through the end of the passage, verse 22, we see how God vulnerably appreciates overlooked people. As usual, you can find the sermon outline. It's projected behind me. It's also in your e-bulletin. But we're going to begin with the beginning, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12 and God's meticulous attention to our details. So let's look there together. If you're anything like me, you tend to overlook the heart of chapter four's actions in these verses one through 10, right? Because the events described here seem actually kind of tedious. Can we just be honest there for a second? They feel a little bit tedious. These 10 verses are a play-by-play description of an ancient legal procedure. Boaz is doing as he promised in chapter three. He's redeeming Naomi and Ruth. But redemption is this religiously loaded word. The redemption pictured here in this passage It just looks so frustratingly small 
and so very inside the lines, doesn't it? I mean, we want a redemption that looks like the movies. We want like epic, show-stopping, city-crushing action like the Batman remake. Or we want the Nicholas Sparks flying heat of the notebook, okay? Instead, redemption in Ruth 4 is about buying a field, marrying a widow. It's the small, faithful steps that often characterize our obedience to God. Therefore, Boaz boldly moves into action by a judicial meeting, according to the ancient law code. He gathers the nearest, the nearer relative responsible for doing the family purchasing, right? He gives him the first offer. Then he has 10 elders who sit at the city gate and, and they serve as witnesses and judges. And the next of kin, uh, and there's a joke in the Hebrew, he's called Mr. So-and-so, literally in the Hebrew. I'm gonna give him a name. <laughs> he's very logically, he's like, I'm all for the land. But then when he finds out the land has a widow who's from Moab attached to it, he says, thanks, but no thanks. Because Moab was ancient Israel's enemy, born of Lot's incest, and they were banned from entering God's assembly, assembly for up to 10 generations. That's just, just to give a sense when he, says Moab, when he says Ruth the Moabite, what it means. So Boaz officially, judicially, obediently gets Naomi's parcel of land from her now deceased husband, Elimelech. And Boaz also receives the hand of Ruth from her now deceased husband, Malon. And Boaz seals this deal with a stirring speech, a word-for-word repeat of the action that we just read. (laughs) And this is a triumphant expression of his sentiments by exchanging footwear, right? A sandal represents the triangle of land on offer. It's a portable real estate title in the pre-printing press age. And while the elders and the bystanders bless Boaz's worthiness and Ruth's fertility, we're left wondering, does Boaz get his sandal back? Does he have to wear the other guy's sandal the rest of his life? Does anyone else ask these questions? How long does he have to wear that sandal? Is it a gross one? And most urgently, we we actually really do need to ask, wait, is this redemption? This is redemption? While most of us have never formally exchanged footwear in a legal ceremony, maybe all of us have never done that. Um, I'm just guessing. We do have the same question, though, don't we? Sometimes right in the middle of doing something good or trying to do something good. Is this really redemption? This is how it works. There we are. We're on our knees. We're cleaning up the glitter or the bodily fluids of another children's playdate. Or we're cleaning up after another life group dinner. We're emailing back someone who emailed us back, who asked to talk about something that maybe at one time was important to them and maybe to us. (laughs) There you are rearranging your calendar, making space to share a meal, listening between the lines of small talk for how that person's marriage is actually doing. And we know these ordinary, sometimes tedious things are important, but why? Why are they so important? For Boaz, it helps us to see that he's exchanging words and he's exchanging footwear because Ruth asked him to do that. In the middle of the night, 
in a man-only zone. She ripped off his blanket and asked for his help. And instead of getting offended or defensive, instead of giving Ruth some sort of condition or a maybe, Boaz is at the city gate in the impromptu court of law for Ruth and Naomi's sake. There he is. Listen to the way that the biblical writer, uh, Carolyn James, puts it. Boaz is up in the middle of the morning, next morning at before the crack of dawn, shredding his to-do list, notifying his assistant to cancel all the engagements for the day. A busy man with a schedule packed full of time-sensitive end-of-season projects is dropping everything and heading into town on a mission Ruth and her mother-in-law cooked up. Two women who also happen to be the least significant members of Bethlehem society. Yes, the frustration that we feel from the time-insensitive interruptions that we take on, that feeling is real. And it's caught up, we get so caught up in these requests, and they're often at the most inconvenient times, right? It's the busy season of work or family. It's right before a vacation or right after a vacation. It's on Friday afternoon when you're just trying to get to the weekend. But also, like Boaz, God chooses to work in these very kind of moments through us. Us, we get to drop something in order to serve someone. It can literally change the course of human lives. But what can motivate us to do this? Well, what motivated Boaz to publicly pledge before a court of law to take care of all of Naomi and Ruth's life and death needs? Boaz sees this. He sees giving, not getting, as the way to make other people thrive, to make a system better. Boaz goes from good to great by showing us actual leadership in the real world. It looks sometimes tedious and often ordinary in its work. And it's work that looks like this. And there's four things I want to take away from the passage. Here's what actual leadership in the real world looks like. It looks like small and inside the system. It takes interruptions seriously. It thinks, what can I do with what I have as an adventure to take and not a burden to manage? And fourth, chooses my short-term discomfort to comfort others for the longer term. There are four things about what leadership and redemption means, God using us. But unless we, have, we see ourselves humbly, it's going to be so hard to do justice and to give mercy. We need to see ourselves as spiritually needy as Ruth and Naomi. Otherwise, we will not have the patience with the legal procedures and the interruptions. Otherwise, we will not have the willingness to sacrifice ourselves for someone else's good. Simply put, to do a work of redemption in another person's life, to be used that way, I need the work of redemption in my life. To do a work of redemption in someone else's life, I need the work of redemption in my life. We've got to see that a greater Boaz, Jesus, Jesus has led the way by his patient self-sacrifice to us. Historically, Jesus was on the smallest of stages. He's killed by an unjust, impromptu law court. Jesus' whole ministry was a series of interruptions that resulted in healings. And finally, dying like a common criminal on a cross, 
out of suffocation. He's abandoned by the very presence of God, the Father, in not just uncomfortable or tedious ways. That first Friday was, Good Friday was cosmically tragic until the hope of Easter Sunday came. You see, Jesus' resurrection makes life out of death. It builds good out of evil, and therefore it promises and proves that our little W works of redemption, that God is doing something through them. He's doing something big out of our small things, that we are part of something that is so much greater, so much bigger than our calendars, bigger than how we can possibly answer the impossible question that well-meaning people ask us all the time. What are you up to these days? (laughs) God's in that question. But our works can look so tragic and tedious, especially when God feels so absent, when he feels so far away. And that's why we need the end of Ruth, the last part of this chapter, verses 13 through 22. Because they are such a simultaneous comfort and challenge to us, aren't they? There we see God's intentionally vulnerable appreciation of overlooked people. Our second and final point this morning. Verses 13 through 16 insist that God vulnerably honors his people. Verse 13 tells us that Ruth and Boaz got married. Boaz went into her. I'm just reading the scripture there. Okay. And the Lord gave her conception. That is the most human, most mysterious things, marriage and sex and conception. God is there. He is present with a good gift, a baby present. God is present with a present. The clear mention of the Lord God at the end of the book of Ruth is so significant because the only other clear mention of God in the book of Ruth is at the very beginning. That's the only time that God's direct intervention is mentioned at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 6. And it's now mentioned again at the end of Ruth to underline how God has been intentionally at work throughout giving meaning throughout the book of Ruth, throughout their lives. Just look at the ways that verses 14 through 16 joyfully acknowledge the fact. They begin, blessed be the Lord. You see, the book of Ruth began with grief and death and emptiness and bitterness. And now it ends with a burst of celebration, of life, of fullness, of sweetness. Thanks be to God. And Naomi, uh, God calls Naomi, right? He moves Naomi from grieving the dead, from calling herself bitter and empty, to bouncing a baby on her knee while serenaded with the sweet blessings of the townspeople that had rejected her. God takes Ruth from grieving her dead husband and a lack of children and being all but invisible to Naomi and the Bethlehem women to showered with public, shut down the town square, over-the-top ancient praise songs. Your daughter-in-law, as more to you than seven sons. Verse 15. But this eventually, happily ever after, you know, brought to you by God, that can be so hard to believe in, can't it? So many of us are so jaded by that. And I think that's why we need to remember that we sometimes look at these passages with such cynicism about God's abilities, despair about his goodness. So let's look together at our cynicism, against our cynicism, a cynicism that overlooks God's abilities, we got to remember that God is not like us. 
God's not like us. He can do far more than one thing at one time for one person and one space or time. God is so much bigger. According to theologian Sinclair Ferguson, God's purposes, which include me, do not center on me. He's always simultaneously and contemporaneously doing several things and several lives. In other words, God can actually pull this off. He could pull off what happened in the book of Ruth because his agency and his power is not limited to one finite human being or many finite human beings. He is infinite. And if God is God, he's not even limited by our understanding of who God is, right? We don't, we, we don't, we far fail to understand his abilities, right? And his abilities to work in our lives, my life and your life. I'm a two-dimensional circle trying to understand a three-dimensional sphere. He is mind-blowing like that. He's surprising my flattened expectations for what he's up to in my life. And if God is able, the question becomes, is he willing to do that kind of good? Sure, we can't understand a story until we've heard the whole of it. So how do we know that our kind of stories, the stories that we're living in, are going to end that well? Against our despair, a despair that overlooks God's goodness, perhaps against his own despair, the author C.S. Lewis wrote a handwritten note in pencil in one of his theology books in the flyleaf in the very inside cover. And this is what he wrote. It's not an abstraction called humanity that is to be saved. It's you yourself, yourself and not another. It's your soul and in some sense not fully understood, even your body, that was made for the high and the holy place. And that you are, every fold and crease and nook and cranny, of your individuality, destined for all eternity to fit God as glove fits a hand. He made those ins and outs that he might fill them. He gave you just so curious a life because the key designed to unlock the door of all the myriad doors in him. In other words, God wants to pull off what happened in the book of Ruth then in our lives now because he values you as you are. He appreciates the whole of you. But notice, God is not interested in a happily ever after that stops with starting a family. What Catherine Sackenfield calls the husband, wife, two children, one dog, one cat version of happily ever after. No, God made us for the high and the holy place. That's so important. And this is why the book of Ruth doesn't end with a baby boy Obed in verse 16. Rather, the book ends a list of names, and the last named name is David, right? The purpose of the book of Ruth is to point us to Jesus. The way Ruth points us to Jesus, the rescuer of the world, the healer of harms, the writer of wrongs, the extender and extension of unmerited kindness to all of the unoverlooked people, book of Ruth is pointing to this Jesus by telling the story of a few days in the life of Jesus's great, 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 great grands. But why? Why? To convince us there's no such thing as an ordinary person. To convince us that there's no such thing as an obscure place to the Lord our God. 
God intimately cares about every scrap of Naomi, every ounce of Ruth and Boaz's life. And he cares about all the times and all the places of every person listed in verses 17 through 22, listed in the leper's chapel, listed in your iPhone contacts list. In the genealogies of Matthew and Luke's gospels, God proves his attention to our details by wrapping up the existence of the Son, Jesus Christ. God become man in the existence of people like us. They are wrapped up in each other. In the Y chromosomes of Perez and Boaz and Jesse and David. You see, God moved. He moved his most precious cargo through famines and family lines. He wrapped the antidote to all the world's problems in a series of fragile embryos and a series of seemingly forgettable lives and forgettable deaths. But if Ruth weren't on her hands and her knees in that field to meet Boaz, if Boaz only found nine elders to assemble at the, at the gate of the city for that law moment, if baby Bo- Obed slipped from Naomi's lap, then there would be no Jesus. There would be no rescue. There would be no justice. There would be no basis for unconditional love on this planet. And as hard as it is for our cynicism to believe that God is able to work through so many lives, as hard as it is for our self-despair to believe that God is able to love us, he's good enough to love us whole. As hard as that's to believe, it may be hardest still to believe that the God of the universe would choose to bind himself and all of his plans to people like us. God invested his very best in men and women who breathe heavily when they go uphill, who sweat through our armpits, who make love and use bad language when we stub our toes in the dark, who laugh at bad jokes and want other people to laugh with them, You see, God had a name, Jesus, or Yeshua, or maybe if we translated it in a more familiar fashion, Josh, just from a couple blocks over. You see, God had a name, and I want you to be embarrassed by Josh's love for you and me, because Jesus is the God of the universe. Jesus is the God who owns every square inch of every part of the universe. And you know what? He actually loves being with you. He loves being with me. Jesus is that someone who at last feels that I, I am the most desirable, attractive, companionable creature on the planet. He's that someone who lies at wake thinking at night of me. That's someone who thinks of me when he orders his life around mine. That's someone who loves me just the way I am. What's the application? Let that unearned gift, that unexpected pleasure, let it rip. Let it go straight to your head and straight to your heart, and never be the same again. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this passage that just inserts itself in our daily lives. And I pray that you wouldn't let us be the same.
that this vision of your cosmic history, the ways that you're so intimately involved, would change everything. The very details of our lives would look different, would feel different, would act differently. And Father, we just pray that you would do that kind of work because you're big enough to do it and you're good enough to do it. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen.